who's a behavioral economist, an author, a TED speaker, also a professor at Duke University. Dan, welcome. Thank you. Nice to be here. So, Dan, let me start by asking you, when someone asks you, you know, what do you do or what is your area of research, how do you describe it in your words? Well, it depends. It depends when. I, I, I give lots of different answers depending on uh, who is sitting next to me on the flight or, you know, how much I want to get into a discussion. Um, but But generally... Uh, I say that I examine what causes people to misbehave and what can we do about it. Hmm. So I think that, you know, in standard economics, uh, there are kind of two sides to economics. There's the descriptive side and there's the prescriptive side. There's a part of economic theory saying we're describing human nature, that's the descriptive side, and there's a part that says we're going to tell you how to run your life, how to create tax systems, hospitals, anything, mm. right? And behavior economics is kind of the same thing from that perspective. It says there's a theory that is describing human behavior, not in the same way that not the same way that economic theory does, but we look at all kinds of irrational quirks of human behavior. But then there's also the prescriptive side that says, so how should we run our life, given given the human quirks that we have. Hmm. Now, how did you get into this area, or what was the genesis of how you started studying this stuff? So, so I started very much from kind of an interest to fix things. So I was, I was burned very badly when I was uh, young, about 70% of my body, and uh, hospitals, the hospital I was in, gave me lots of opportunities to observe what I thought was uh, inappropriate or uh, later I thought of it as irrational but at that point I just thought it was like wrong behavior um, and I wanted to do things better hmm. and uh, initially I wanted to do, to be a physician I thought you know the right way to do things in a better way would be to, to become a, a physician myself but because my hands were so badly burned I, hmm. I couldn't I went to, to interview in a medical school and they said they can't take me I couldn't hold a knife. I mean, there's lots of things that physicians do that I couldn't mm. just couldn't just do. Uh, a blessing in disguise, perhaps? Uh, yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, so, so I actually started studying uh, math and physics, and then I realized that I couldn't, because I couldn't use my hands, I couldn't hold a pencil or a pen, I couldn't solve math problems, I couldn't, I couldn't do that. So I, I decided to study philosophy and psychology. I thought something I don't really have to use my hands that much. And then I kind of fell in love with psychology. I fell in love with this idea that you can understand human nature, you can ask questions, and you can try to do things in a better way. Mm. And it was about the time when personal computers were becoming more popular mm. and computer interfaces were getting to be part of how people were making decisions. Um, and it was just a, an interesting, interesting period. And mm. from there... Just kept on going. So tell me the first interesting piece of research or the first sort of discovery that you made or experiment that you ran that, you know, generated some interesting that results. What was the first thing you came up with? So the first thing I did when I was still an undergrad, um, so I had this, uh, I had a professor who was 
uh, also got badly injured. He was actually a very important person in my life. Uh, he, his tank went over a landmine and he lost both of his legs. And he, he made his research topic pain. So he kind of took on his personal you know, experience with pain and made it into his profession, which was one kind of interesting thing, right? You can take your hobby or, you know, it wasn't exactly hobby, but you could take something that you're personally engaged with and make it into your profession. But the second thing that he did, his name is Hanan Frank, that he, every time we had a, a question about something about how the brain works, it was a class on physiology of the brain, rather than telling us the answer, he said, how would you experiment with this? How would you test it? Which was a very interesting uh, way to teach. Hmm. But anyway, I had a connection with him. We were in the same hospital, you know, many years apart, with some of the same physicians, some of the same nurses, and so on. So we had, we had a connection. And one day I come to him uh, before class, and I say, you know, I just went to the dentist the first time since my injury, and I told him I don't need Novocaine. I said they had to drill to to do a filling, and I said, you know, it was painful, but I didn't care so much. Mm-hmm. And he said he, he's been doing the same thing for 30 years, going to a dentist without hmm. uh, Novocaine. And we, we said, you know, are we just enjoying pain? Are we different? <laughs> Is it m- more common? So we went to, um, we started to sit out. So we went to a, a place that um, army veterans uh, go. It's like a country club, but only for people who uh, were or are uh, injured. And we did an experiment in which we asked people to put their hand in, a v- in very hot water, tell us when the heat becomes pain. So if you put your hand in hot water, it's not painful immediately. Mm. right? It takes a couple of seconds for mm. the heat to become pain, mm. and we call this the pain threshold, when it becomes painful. And then we said, please keep your hand in there until you can't tolerate it anymore. And after 60 seconds, we asked everybody to take it out so we don't create burns. And and we got a, gr- a large group of people to do this task. And then we took their medical records and we went back to the hospital. And we asked physicians and uh, nurses to categorize the people into two groups. A group of people who had severe history with pain and a group that didn't. And we looked at what happened to the two group. And what we found was that people who had severe injuries just had much higher pain threshold intolerance. They could basically keep their hand in hot water for much longer. And it took them much longer to interpret heat as, as pain. And and this kind of fit fit our intuition that when you're in hospital for a very long time, you basically have a very different relationship with pain. Mm-hmm. Now, there was another interesting thing about this uh, study there were two people, only two people, that were the opposite. Those people had very strong history of pain, but they uh, were very, very sensitive to pain. And one of, the, one of them had cancer, and one of them had terrible intestinal problems from um, an explosion. Um, and the thing about those people, those two individuals, is that for them pain signals getting closer to death. Right? If you think about somebody who's a cancer patient, for example, pain doesn't r- signal recovery. If you think about somebody like me or something, somebody like Hanan, every time we had pain, something was getting better. It was an operation, it was a treatment, it was something. And I think over time, we, we learned that pain is not just negative, but it also means something positive. There is some, some improvement that is connected to it. Whereas for these two people who had a cancer in the intestinal problem, 
there was nothing like this for them all pain was just mm. things worse so anyway that was that was maybe the first uh, th- that was the first big study I, I did and if you think about the elements it was something about my personal experience that I was curious about that I then went ahead and tested uh, I learned that yes something about my intuition was right uh, but I also learned something new and kind of opened new questions because mm. uh, this this idea that the people with the the cancer and the intestinal problems had lower pain threshold intolerance basically suggests that it's not about the experience of pain. It's not about familiarity with pain. It's about the interpretation mm. of pain. How do we how do we interpret in this idea that we can think about something in a cognitive way and reframe pain. By the way, most of my research now is not on not on pain. I do mostly stuff on financial decision making and health. But but we d- we we are having a new project on pain that is kind of related. Um, we've looked at uh, professional athletes. We looked at cyclists, and we we found a pattern that we call benign masochism. Hmm. When I don't know, do you cycle? No, I don't. Okay, I I don't either. I tried it a little few times, but it's a very painful sport because it's the same movement over and over and over for hours against in the same muscle group against friction. Right, hmm. very very hard. Some of these professional athletes told us that they sometimes just want to count to 30. They don't think about a mile. They say, I just want to last 30 more seconds. They say 30, 29, and then it's another 30 seconds. So it's very, very tough. And what we found is that they're able to enjoy the pain. Hmm. Now, it's not a, a craving in the way that you enjoy ice cream, but but it is a kind of enjoyment that if they don't feel pain, they don't think they've done the right the right thing. They don't think they've done their job. And somehow the pain it also means I've done something right. My muscles are improving. I'm working hard. I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And what we're thinking now is how do we take that reframing that they're so good at doing and use it for side effects. So one of the barriers for people taking their medication is side effects. Mm. And just the word side effect is terrible. Right, because unlike cyclists, cyclists think that the pain is an inherent part of getting better. Whereas side effects says this is an inherent part of not what you want, right? right? It's not not about what you want. And we're wondering whether we could help people reframe side effects hmm. in a in a less negative way. Like I don't think we'll get anybody who goes to chemotherapy to crave vomiting, right? right. We, we're not yeah. going to get there, but 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 can we get it to be less painful or less dreadful? I think the answer is yes. So tell me a little bit about how you went from this initial pain experiment to the bulk of what you've been studying or Stun- you're well-known studying, you know, the whole thing about dishonesty and behavior and that sort of thing. How did yeah. it kind of go to that topic? So so another, another study I did uh, at that time was the study that was uh, informed by how to remove bandages from burn patients. Right, so uh, you can imagine ripping bandages off quickly or taking them off slowly, and um, and in my in my department in the burn department in the hospital I was in the, the nurses actually in almost all uh, burn departments they had the theory that the right approach is to remove bandages off quickly. So and and I tested that and I it turned out that they were wrong. That if you take a painful experience. And you 
make it longer, you don't make it much more painful. If you make it more intense, you make the perception of pain much higher. So the nurses were wrong. Actually, they were wrong in all kinds of ways. They were wrong in the, the sequence of pain. They should have started with the most painful and decreased pain over time. They were wrong with not giving me breaks. They were wrong in all kinds of ways. And what was interesting about this was not just that they were wrong, but that they had no idea that they were wrong. <laughs> uh, and they had very strong intuition that they were right. And, and from that point, I started thinking, you know, what are the cases in which we basically have no good evidence, but lots of beliefs about how the world works. Mm. And we apply those beliefs over and over without questioning them. So, um, you know, if you think about uh, bandages, you can say, you know, I just think it's the right approach to rip them off quickly. Um, if you think about uh, how do we deal with money or what do we do with motivation, you know, some of the research we've done recently is about motivation. Um, at the workplace, and if you say, what is the right way to reward people mm. for, hard, for hard work? Um, what is the right way to, to price something? I mean, all of those questions, uh, in many of them, we, we don't actually question ourselves. We just have a strong belief and we just do it time after time after time. Um, and, and if our beliefs are wrong, uh, it's not just that we're not getting the full benefit. We can actually create harm. Mm. Well, tell me a little bit about what was the first piece of research that actually got some you know, notoriety or people really started saying, wow, you're onto something. What was the first experiment that sort well, of <coughs> achieved that goal? I don't know about notoriety, but I, I will tell you that there's a, there was, you know, we started talking about pain, so I'm, I'm going to do more pain, but um, there's, there's a prize called the Ig Nobel Award. Do you know the Ig Nobel Award? Mm -hmm. Oh, it's a, it's, a, it's a funny award, but it's a... It's a award for research that first makes you laugh and then makes you think. <laughs> and it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Um, when I was a student, I went to the Ig Nobel uh, Awards uh, once. It's, it's at Harvard. Um, and there was a guy that showed that the toast does fall with the butter side down more, more frequently. <laughs> and, you know, you look at this piece of paper and you say, like, uh, this paper, and you say, you know, oh, this is a funny funny piece of research, but the reality was it was a very complex paper in physics about objects that were uh, with an uneven distribution of weight. Mm. And he described it with a toast, but of course it's a much more general uh, question. But I thought this is beautiful, right? It's beautiful to think about something that is deep and complex and important, but you're presenting in a way that fits our model of the world and you can actually think about it in, in a particular way. So anyway, so I got that prize once um, for research showing that expensive placebos work better than cheap placebos. Hmm. So what we did was we invented a fake medication called Valadon RX. Uh, we got people to come to the lab. Uh, we connected them to a machine. We gave them some electrical shocks. And we measure how much pain they could take. Uh, and then we gave them Valadon Rx and gave them 15 minutes for it to work. But, of course, it was just placebo. Uh, and then we uh, tested again. And what we saw was that placebo worked, right? So when people get the medication, uh, their pain tolerance goes up. They can tolerate more electrical shocks. But we had four medications, a version of the medication, which, of course, they were all the same, but we told people something different about them. We had uh, expensive 
American version, cheap American version, expensive Chinese version, cheap Chinese version. So two by two design, expensive versus cheap, Chinese versus American. And what we found was that the Chinese versus American didn't make a difference, right? Mm -hmm. And I think because kind of Chinese medication has its own kind of ma magic or expected magic. Um, but expensive versus cheap worked, uh, had a big difference. And the expensive ones worked much better. Hmm. Now, just to be clear, placebos are all about expectation. Placebo is really an amazing effect. So if you have a physician who injects you with saline water, with IV fluid, uh, what happens is that your body is expecting pain relief and your body is secreting its own pain relief. Hmm. So we have a substance in our brain that is opioids, very much like morphine, but internal, and we start secreting it. Now you can't you can't close your eyes and say, please, 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 I want some pain relief. But if you expect something to happen, your body automatically starts mm. secreting it, right? Our, our body basically, our brain always tries to predict the future and prepare for that future. Mm. And that's what placebo is. Placebo mm. is about the fact that you have some expectations and our expectations shape our physiology. Mm. By the way, there was a recent study which I... I love showing that when the advertising for asthma medication was more effective, the medication was more effective as well. Mm. So, right? It, because it is, it is a story about expectations. So, now, and of course, lots of things create expectation. The shape of the pill. Injections create higher placebo effect and then gel capsules and they create more more placebic effect than regular pills. Somebody with a white coat is more effective than somebody without a white coat. And price is the same thing, mm. right? The moment something is expensive, you expect it to be better. The moment when something is cheap, in a, in a non-conscious way, you just expect it not to be as good. And then it actually has fulfilling prophecies. Mm. Now, when did you get to the, ex the experiment that was the subject of that movie of the truth about dishonesty yeah. and that terrific test about cheating and stuff? When, how did that come about in, in your research? Yeah so, yeah, so the last... So actually, I've been, I've been studying dishonesty for, for a while. Um, and, and it started, again, from kind of a personal experience. I was, I was on one of those flights and I was bored looking at the flight magazine and it was one of these Mensa tests. And you know, the test is on page 17, and you look at the first question, and it says, answer on page 170. And I look at question one, I think I know the answer. I look at the page 174, whatever it is in the back, and I, I don't remember if I thought I was right or wrong. But then I realized that as I was going through this process, I was glancing at the next answer. <laughs> and then when I got back to page 17, every time I said, oh my goodness, I'm a genius. Now, th that test proved I was a genius, but I was cheating, right? And, and I was cheating myself. And I thought, you know, I, when I was going through the process, I didn't think I was cheating. Hmm. But I kind of was cheating. Um, and I started thinking about, about dishonesty more, more generally and, and our capacity to cheat ourselves. Uh, and and not to think of ourselves as cheaters because in general you know when you do these Mensa tests like this you don't think of yourself or oh, I'm a cheater you just think I'm a genius very quickly you convince yourself that you're a genius so um, 
So I did my first experiment on cheating, and it wasn't with the Menza test, it was something different. Um, and then, as I was starting to become interested in this, uh, Enron happened. Mm. And Enron was an interesting story because in the beginning, there was this belief that there were just three bad apples, right? Here's a company with three bad apples, but I was teaching at MIT at the time, and I already finished my first studies on dishonesty, and I saw lots of cheaters. In fact, in my data, you know, I tested hundreds of students, there was no big cheater, and there were lots of little cheaters. Mm. And I said, you know, the, the theory in Enron is that there's a bad apple, but I don't see bad apples. I see lots of little, you know, blemished mm-hmm. uh, apples. And I said, could it be that, that our theory of, of, of dishonesty is wrong, that it's not about big bad player it's about it's about all of us have the capacity to be dishonest um so the next 10 years did lots of experiments on dishonesty um the basic we have a few paradigms but I'll tell you one of them in one of them we give people a die a six-sided die and we say why don't you roll this die we'll see what it comes up on we'll pay you whatever it comes up on comes on six we'll give you six dollars five five three three so on and so forth um, but you can get paid based on the top side or the bottom, top or bottom. You decide, but don't tell us. So imagine I ask you, please pick top or bottom. Don't tell me. And you pick something up. And then you roll the die. And let's say the die came with five on the bottom and two on the top. And now I say, what did you pick? Now, if you picked bottom, no problem. You say bottom and you get $5. Mm. If you pick top, you have a dilemma. Do you say the truth, top, and get only $2? Or do you change your mind and say, oh, yeah, I really meant bottom? and get $5. And in the experiments, people do this 20 times. And every time they think top or bottom, they say it in their mind, they don't say anything, they roll the die, they write down on a piece of paper, it came with five and two, six and one, three and four, and then they say what they picked. And what happens is people are very lucky. You know, people are, <laughs> people cheat a little bit. And, and then we find that what changes cheating. We find that lots of people cheat a little bit, but people cheat more if they can rationalize it. If people think that they were screwed before by somebody or this is a payment for something or everybody else is doing it or uh, this is moral or if they don't get money, they get something else that then becomes money. There's all kinds of versions. Everything that gets people to rationalize mm-hmm. uh, gets people to cheat uh, to, to cheat more. So now tell me, um, there there's a, obviously a million, infinite number of questions and things you can think about that you can test. And obviously, we, you know, you have a finite number of time, you have finite resources. How do you figure out what you're going to pursue? Because you must have five ideas, ten ideas every day as you live your life and as you observe people that you could test or, you know, try to figure out. Yeah. So, so you know, I had, I had different phases of my life in that regard. Um in the beginning, I would look at what interesting for me is more th- theoretically. Uh, later on, when I started writing things more in the popular uh, press, all of a sudden I had opportunities to do field studies. So, you know, when, when I was just working in the lab, I, I just did stuff that was interesting for me theoretically. Then all of a sudden people started approaching me and say, hey, let's test something in, in real life. And it was very exciting to try and have a real impact. On, on behavior. Um, and then a few years ago, I decided to 
try and focus a bit. So, uh, so for the last two years, uh, my research lab at Duke uh, and I, we've been trying to focus on financial decision-making and health. Mm. Uh, how do we get people to spend less, save more, take less loans that are not good for them? Uh, and on the health side, we're trying to get people to exercise, yeah. diet, take the medication on time, stuff stuff like that. Um, so we're focusing, we're trying to focus on those, on those things. Um, and why those things? And and if you think about what are the big ways in which there's kind of human waste, mm. uh, kind of tell me if I if, if I'm missing anything, but I think it's we're wasting our time, <laughs> money and health, and then there's hate, which is like the fourth terrible waste. Um, and I don't know what to do about hate. I mean, there's a little bit of research on this, but very, very hard to, to combat. Uh, I know some things about time, and we've been working on how to help people uh, manage their time better. And health and money are the the other big two. And, you know, most most of the problem with health is is behavior. Mm-hmm. Like I, was, I was at a conference in Holland uh, two weeks ago, and they try to estimate what would be the improvement in life expectancy if people took their medications for uh, cardiovascular problems, and what would be the effect if people ate better and exercised. And you know, <coughs> they estimated that it's it's four to one on that uh, that the effect of medication will be twenty percent. The effect of health and exercise is eighty percent. Right? Mm. You look at this, you say. Yes, let's just let's just get people to behave better. It's it's the behavior that is the uh, the real the real problem, and the same is true for money, right? It's very hard to think about money the right way. So we think about it the wrong way, and we make all kind of mistakes. So you know, we design the world without taking human limitation into account. Hmm. Think about food. We're designing things like donuts and. <laughs> Two little bottle, two liter bottle of Coke, and uh, Happy Meals, and all kinds of things that are not necessarily good for us, but incredibly tempting. Mm-hmm. And on the financial side too, we're designing credit cards and Apple Pay and Android Pay, and all kinds of things that get to spend more easily and making it hard for us to to save. And as a consequence, we make mistakes. Mm. Uh, but if we understand better where we go wrong. Uh, we can also design different tools to get us to behave better. Tell me of all the experiments that you've run or you know the questions that you pondered, which are there one or two maybe that leap out to you that surprised you the most or was the most unexpected of all the experiments you've run? <coughs> so, you know, of course, with time, I, the, my research center at Duke, we, we call it the, the Center for Advanced Hindsight is the, the official name. And... And we call it because, you know, in retrospect, you can explain to yourself anything. But I'll tell you about one experiment that we did recently that uh, surprised me. This was a study in uh, Kibera, in a slum in Kenya, where we were trying to get very poor people to save a bit of money. And what we designed was a system where people could text money in into their M-Pesa account, but every night the money would be transferred into a, into a, the stock market. The stock market. And we did it this way because we wanted them to have an easy time putting the money in, but a hard time taking it out. Mm. 
so they could text money in, but if they wanted it to get it out, they had to take a bus, go to the city, fill a form, wait an hour, take a bus back. It might, might take four hours. And we did this because we wanted people to have access to the money if there was an emergency, but we didn't want everything to become an emergency. So everybody got this system, easy in, hard out. And then we added things to it. Some people just got that system, the control. Some people got that system plus a weekly reminder that says try and save 100 shillings, about a dollar this week. Some people got the same text message, but as if it came from their kids. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. This little Johnny, whatever the name of the kid was, try and save 100 shillings this week. Some people got a 10% match. Save up to 100 shillings, we'll give you 10%. Some people got a 20% match. Two other groups also got 10% and 20%, but they got pre-match. What is pre-match? Pre-match is that we assume you will put the 100 shillings, and we put the 10 shillings or the 20 shillings into the account at the beginning of the week, and if you save, you get to keep it. If not, we take it back. Mm. This is based on the principle of loss aversion, the idea that people hate losing more than we enjoy gaining. So if you see money coming in, that's great, and leaving, that's terrible. So we said if people would see money leaving, they will start... Uh, saving more. And then we had another group that we gave them a coin and the coin had numbers on it, 24 numbers for the 24 weeks of the program. We asked people to put the coin somewhere in their hut and then every week to take a knife and scratch the number for that week, week one, two, three, four, and scratch it one way if they didn't save, another way if they saved. Now when we asked people, both in Kenya and the US, what they think would work, people say the 20% then the 10%, and then everything else, because it's really about financial incentives. What actually happened was that the thing that really surprised us... did you us, think that also? Did you think that that before you just... I, I thought that loss aversion will be more important. I didn't think that the difference between 10% and 20% will be large, but I assumed that the loss aversion would be the thing that would, would drive it. Um, and... And there's two two interesting things in the results. Uh, so here's the result. The result are that you give the system to people, they save. You add a weekly reminder that savings jumps up. You add to it 10% at the end of the week, slight increase. 20% at the end of the week, just like 10%. Yeah. 10% in the beginning of the week, slight increase. 20% beginning of the week, just like 10%. Yeah. And kids were just like 10 and 20% with loss aversion, which was the first surprising thing, right? That they just, having a text from your kids is equivalent to 20% match plus loss aversion. But the real big surprise was the coin, because the coin almost doubled savings compared to everything else. Mm. And of course, the question is why? Now, I, I got the idea for the coin when I was in Sueto, different slum, and I saw a father buying funeral insurance. Uh, funerals in Sueto are very expensive. Some people spend up to two years of income mm. on funerals. So this father bought funeral insurance, and he got a certificate for a week, right? Because he doesn't have money, so he buys it for a week. He gets a certificate, and in a very ceremonious way, hands it to his son. And And what I thought was that he was somebody who took something that was non-visible, right? If you're a breadwinner and you bring money home, what's visible is food and drinks and kerosene and stuff like that. Every time you save or buy insurance, the only thing the family really sees is that you're taking away things from them. Mm. 
But here this father was taking something invisible, insurance, and making it visible by giving the kid the certificate. And I thought that's a beautiful thing. You know, it, it used to be that people used to save in things like goats, right? 200 years ago, you saved in goats. You, you had some extra money, you would get another goat. And, and your neighbors could see how many goats you have, and you could compete on who has more goats. Now when we are in the digital money, you have no idea mm. what your neighbors are saving. Um, by the way, you know the only thing you know is how much they're spending. Um, there was a recent paper that showed that when people win the lottery, their neighbors start spending more money. Right, because we compete on what we can see, which is which is spending. By the way, th- this this study, if you think about it, it's it's a surprising, which is kind of nice. But but the other thing is it it does bring up some really interesting questions. And and for me, good studies are always like this: that you you find something, but then you have more mm-hmm. more questions. And and in particular, you think about okay, what what does it tell us about the structure of society? Mm. Um, are there things that right now are invisible that that we want to make visible, more visible. Obviously, there's um, you know so many questions that you could research, and every time you, as you mentioned, every time you research, you know more questions get asked. Do you ever think you don't have enough time to answer all the questions you want to research? Do you, or do you think about that in any way, or do you think like it's just overwhelming as far as the number of possible things you could? you know, research and discover? Do you ever think about that? All, all the time, all the time. Uh, so, you know, on, a, on an average day, I have all kinds of thoughts about things I should be studying. Or could be studying. And, uh, and some of them I feel I should be. And, and I just don't have time. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a new uh, U.S. regulation now that every restaurant that has more than, I forget what, 20 branches need to post calorie information on all the items in the menu. And, you know, so far all the research we've done on calorie information showing that it doesn't matter. Um, But, you know, now lots of restaurants will have to put calorie information. Um, How will they do it? Mm. Uh, Will something change about food? How should they do it? You know, what, uh, is there going to be any impact? Could there be any impact if Mm. we did something something else? you know, that's. Uh, I was in. I told you I was in South Africa. One of the questions is uh, sugar tax to to tax sugary drinks in the U.S. We have not been able to uh, to create this taxation. But you know, what would happen if we created uh, the taxation? Mm. Um, does that de- does that depress you, thinking about the, you all the things, the, all the things that you won't have time to ultimately research and study? You know, I'll, so, so I'll tell you. Um, so, so it's it's a little depressing story, but um, some some time ago, uh, I got a call. I get lots of calls from injured people who mm-hmm. who want to talk about life after the injury. So I get a call from a guy. Uh, he emails me. He said, "Please call me." I call him back. Uh, it turns out he's a quadriplegic, um, paralyzed from the neck down. And he wants to talk about how to find meaning in life. And we talk about some options, and then he asked me, what do I think about suicide? And I said, you know, I'm not against it, but let's look at other options first. Um, And then we talk once a week, and we try to track his progress and so on. And and four months later, he does commit Mm. commit suicide. Um, And after that, I started 
talking to more quadriplegics. Try to understand kind of what what gets some people to find meaning in life and some people don't. And there are many lessons from these discussions, but one of them is that the some of the most successful quadriplegic that I've met uh, change their focus of success. Hmm. They don't think about the meaning of life. They think about, let me time myself and see if I can get dressed by myself. Right. So if you're quadriplegic, by the way, getting dressed is not an easy thing. It could take 45 minutes. You have to kind of wiggle yourself in. There's a dressing stick. You know, it's a very complex thing. Um, but some of the most successful people, that's what they do. They basically say, here's my goal. I want to break my record. Mm. And, and they work on it. And and I think the same thing is important for people who, who look at the world and see lots of challenges and sadness. You know, I, my life is, is really full of lots of sadness. I mean, if you just go to any slum in the world, it's just too much to, to contain the amount of... Uh, misery and and sadness and pain and illness and cruelty it's it's a tough thing but i i think like these successful quadriplegics i think about small steps forward you know can we solve poverty i don't see that uh, happening but can we make steps forward absolutely and we're making them so so i've kind of shifted or maybe always had it. I'm not sure, but I'm kind of focusing on the small, on the on the steps that we can take, rather than looking at the magnitude of things we still need to improve. Well, Dan, this has been a fascinating conversation. I could talk to you all night, but uh, I really appreciate your taking time out of your busy schedule. I hope you can come back in a few years and tell me about what you're, you're researching then. With pleasure. This is Richard Chu and Dan Ariely. Thanks. Thank you.